good morning, Res Prez. Uh, as was just said, uh, my name is Nick Brancher, and I'm your campus minister at the University of Wisconsin, Milwaukee, uh, for RUF. If you don't know what RUF is, there's also a chapter here at Madison, but RUF is essentially uh, a college ministry out of the Presbyterian Church in America, uh, and we reach and equip students on the college campus. We create communities where students can uh, also belong before they believe, and uh, that's kind of uh, the MO uh, for us, reaching and equipping. Uh, Cam is your guys' local uh, campus minister, but because of the nature of uh, Presbyterianism, uh, your church, along with the other churches in the Wisconsin Presbytery, actually together call all RUF campus ministers. Uh, your churches actually function as our sessions, just like Matt has this local session here in Madison. Uh, the beauty of Presbyterian uh, church government, that we can do that kind of thing. Thanks for inviting me uh, this morning uh, to open the word with you while Matt's away. And uh, this morning, we are looking at the parable of the lost sheep from Luke 15, 1 through 7. I'll read it in a moment. But before I do, uh, thinking about the issue of acceptance, in our, our passion or passage this morning, Luke is going to talk to us uh, about two kinds of false acceptance as Jesus unpacks a parable. First, he's going to put before us a true acceptance, and then how we kind of get this true acceptance. And the reason that we're talking about this, uh, that we're talking about acceptance as a theme, it's really just something we all long for, isn't it? It's, it's why many of us join teams or organizations. If you're here and you're, you know, uh, elementary, middle school, high school aged, uh, you might have... Uh, joined a team for this reason, right? You join a volleyball team, but if you're, maybe you've joined a community theater if you're a little older, right? You went and you thought, I'll go to this practice one time. And you got there and people kind of were like you and you started joking around and you're like, I kind of like these people and they push you in the right ways. They encourage you. Maybe you went to a rock climbing gym once with a friend and you thought, these are my people, right? You were a, a belonging. They embraced you, motivated you. In fact, right, what I hope is that Res Prez is that kind of community. You know, I watch you from afar, obviously living in Milwaukee, but uh, I think one of the things that you guys pride yourselves on, one of the things that, we, that you've even said in this service is that people want belonging and that it is good at Res Prez for you to belong, even if you haven't made up all your, your mind about the particulars of what you believe. We hope that you feel a sense of belonging and acceptance. In fact, at this church that you don't, feel elsewhere in this city. We hope you feel belonging, uh, acceptance. The Bible from its earliest chapters claims that we crave that connection, that we crave intimacy to be accepted by one another. In fact, in Genesis 2, God looks upon creation and he pronounces that it is not good until he makes the fir first human relationship. And then it is very good. So this morning, we're asking the question, how do we find that acceptance and belonging that we seek, right? We're created for that, and yet, how do we find it rightly? That's our big question this morning that we'll be asking throughout this passage. We'll return to it again and again. How do we find acceptance and belonging? Let's read about that. Let's read about what Jesus, uh, as Luke describes it, uh, says about uh, our acceptance and belonging. This is Luke 15, 1 through 7. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, that is Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, 
if he has lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it. And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost just so. I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. The gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. Uh, Let me pray for a moment. Oh Lord, uh, we do pray that uh, you would simply let the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight. Oh Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So let's dive into our passage as we seek to answer the question, where do we find acceptance? Let's start, will you look with me at verses 1 and 2 of our passage? Verses 1 and 2. Right from the jump, Luke introduces us to two groups of people. One, the sinners and tax collectors, and the other, the Pharisees and the scribes. Both these groups are the ones reflected in the parable that follows. And you'll note, as Jesus sums it up in verse 7, from the perspective of heaven, all people fall into one of these two groups. In the eyes of Jesus, you are either like the one lost sheep or the righteous 99. There is no in-between. What does it look like to belong to one of these two groups then? Let's start by looking at the Pharisees and scribes. This group uh, was well known in the ancient Near East as being particularly zealous for God's law and generally regarded as good people. Maybe that's why the one detail that Luke provides about these Pharisees and scribes, which prompts this story from Jesus, is that these men were grumblers. This grumbling is the great identifier of the self-righteous. What are they grumbling about? Look with me again at verse 2. They complain, this man receives sinners and eats with them. It's difficult for these Pharisees and scribes to comprehend how is it that Jesus could receive tax collectors and sinners at his table, right? How could he eat with them? Almost as if he were friends with them? To put a finer point on it, right, in terms of acceptance, these men were threatened by Jesus's intentional inclusion of sinners and tax collectors, right? His inclusion of them threatens them. Now, why? Why would they be threatened by that? What, is it, what, is it, what difference does it make that Jesus would be friends with these kinds of people? Well, it tears at the very nature of how they belong to their group. Think about it. These scribes and Pharisees, they find their identity in their moral performance, and each man finds his worthiness in the group by falsely inflating his own moral superiority, and, assumedly, the rest of the group also inflating one another's moral superiority. They've earned their place among the elite, right? They deserve the, pre- the prestige that they enjoy and uh, the pats on the back that they receive mostly from themselves and one another, right? But as Jesus points out in the course of this parable, these 99 are not prized by the shepherd. Their self-righteousness is not beautiful to him. They aren't sought after. They don't get a party. They have what they most desire, only one another not the shepherd. This brings us to our first answer to the, uh, this morning to our question, how do we find acceptance? Well, we can wrongly find it in our goodness. We can wrongly find it in our goodness. Here's the problem with this, right? The, this search for an inner ring, to be in the in-group, to be uh, the accepted ones, the powerful ones, uh, it's a game of comparison. It's 
a game of comparison, and all self-righteousness is really born out of comparison. It's the only way that it works. This is why these Pharisees and scribes grumble by Jesus lifting up those who are below them on the social totem pole. They have no standard by which they can compare themselves. C.S. Lewis, in his essay, The Inner Ring, brilliantly describes the allure of being you know, in the room where it happens. It's, it's included in your reflection section. He argues that it's not even the inclusion into the inner ring that we desire, but it's really just excluding others from it. He writes, your genuine inner ring exists for exclusion. There'd be no fun if there were no outsiders. The invisible line would have no meaning unless most people were on the wrong side of it. Exclusion is no accident, it is the essence. This is what causes these men to grumble. In other words, like the Pharisees, when we base our acceptance on our resumes and seek out our belonging in the right groups of people, right, the good people, or even just people who believe the right things, we do so with our aim to exclude the other people who don't. This sense of belonging is simply based on the illusion that others don't belong. Now, we've got to ask ourselves a simple question this morning, sobering question. Is this us? Right? Is Jesus talking about us? Are we the 99 righteous sheep? Right? We've, we've, got to, we've got to look at that for a moment. Are you here this morning? Because this is what good moral people do. They show up and they do church. Do you think you belong here because you have the right set of values, unlike the sinful people out there that are doing other things on a Sunday morning? We're in here. We've, we've found the truth. We know right and wrong. Heck, you know what? You might be hearing like, oh, I... Oh, Nick, that's not me. That's not me. I, I know that I'm a sinner, right? And I need Jesus, unlike those people out there, right? Like, it's, it's so tempting to just point the finger again, right? To just say that I'm, I'm not like my neighbor in this way. Even correct theology can turn us into a group of holier-than-thou elitists. And we should really repent. I mean, this is Jesus' call to all of us to repent if we find that in our hearts. Now, Maybe you've been sitting there like, yeah, yeah, what he said. This is why I got dragged to church this morning because uh, I don't want to go because it's, Christians are just a bunch of you know, egotistical, self-righteous, moralistic killjoys. Uh, maybe there's even here someone today you think this about, right, secretly in your heart. I mean, I hope they're listening. I'm listening, unlike them. Anyways, uh, listen to yourself. As I mentioned earlier, right, Luke also describes a second group of people that if that's you today, like you might identify with a little bit more readily, right? The, the tax collectors and sinners. To these people, those outside the religious moral group of their day, the Pharisees' self-righteousness, it smacks of hypocrisy and power hoarding, right? They hate it. The outsider sentiment is summed up by a mandolin orange now watch house song, it's also in your reflections. It's called Gospel Shoes. They say this about people who uh, are, this is the cry of those who are essentially on the outer group. Gospel shoes are laced with shackles and chains, fitter, fitted for the poor runners of the race. Now every hand is folded in the shape of a gun. Target's ever-changing, but the war, it rages on. For the outsiders, religion is just an excuse for a bunch of people to target and burden the rest of society with their superior morals, right? To shackle them and bring them down. It makes sense then how Luke describes these people who are shackled and being brought down by the Pharisees. These 
tax collectors and sinners. Look with me at verse 1. Look at me at verse 1. Luke notes their particular description is that they were drawing near to Jesus. While the scribes and Pharisees grumble amongst themselves, the tax collectors and sinners are drawing near to Jesus. But before we look at what that means, that they are drawing near to him, I want to make a note about what verse 1 does not say, just for a moment. Note that it does not say that they were drawing near to one another. They're drawing near to Jesus. There's a sense in which this kind of acceptance can also happen, right? Just like with the Pharisees and scribes, there are plenty of communities that center themselves around what the Bible would call sin. In fact, these communities often become necessary to ignore the conviction that members might feel in pursuing many behaviors that drown out the truth of Scripture, right? You huddle together and you say, you know, our lifestyle isn't, isn't bad. In fact, it's good, and you celebrate what is wrong. While the self-righteous inflate their own righteousness at the cost of others, this kind of community minimizes its own sinfulness at the cost of others. Both, both are actually exclusive uh, groups. Both are actually doing harm to their neighbors, but they're doing it uh, in different ways. And, and drawing near to one another would be uh, to minimize the sinfulness of their behavior. And while this passage does not explicitly mention this kind of acceptance because Jesus is so much better that all these tax collectors and sinners are just moving toward him. The Bible is not silent about this temptation, right? This acceptance found in sin itself happened in the life of Israel in the Old Testament. In the 7th century BC, God's people had strayed from the truth and they were deeply committed to worshiping other gods, centering their lives around their own desires, their own plans for money and sex and power. And in Jeremiah 6, also printed in your reflections, the prophet describes the leaders of God's people at that time. He says this, For from the least to the greatest of them, everyone is greedy for unjust gain. And from prophet to priest, everyone deals falsely. They have healed the wound of my people lightly, saying, Peace, peace, when there is no peace. Like clockwork, there were false prophets who were more than happy to cry, Peace, peace, when there was no peace when there was no peace. They healed the wound of God's people lightly by saying their idolatry wasn't so bad. You're God's chosen people. He loves you. God is love. He's just going to forgive you. It's not that big of a deal. Your sin isn't that big of a deal. And they kept saying that over and over to people, saying it's, it's all good. God, like, as you, can, you can worship other gods, then as long as you just say you're sorry to the real God, it, it's all good. You know, you don't even have to mean it. They said that God would never judge them. And they established a false sense of acceptance, you know, that, was this, that, that contradicted how God said that they should find their acceptance, right? They were happy to deaden the sense of guilt that people had over their sin and to celebrate what was evil. And people loved them for it. People will always love you if you tell them what they want to hear, right? It's, it's uh, scratching, tickling ears, right, tells, tells people what they want to hear and it makes them feel good, Right? This is our second answer to the question, how do we find acceptance? We can wrongly find it in our sin. If you're like, well, that doesn't happen. People don't just rejoice over people doing bad things. Uh, I beg to differ. Uh, the, the same thing happens today, right? For example, uh, it's become fashionable in alcohol advertisements. And I looked this up. It's actually not required, but everyone does it. Uh, usually at the end of a commercial or if you see a print advertisement somewhere on it, it will say something like drink responsibly at the end. I thought that was like a government mandate, but it's actually not. Uh, it's just become fashionable to do it. 
Um, and you know, drink responsibly is on all these ads. But have y'all ever heard the phrase drink Wisconsinably? Have y'all heard that phrase? I had never heard of it until I moved here uh, three years ago. And there's, in fact, there's a bar with that name on it in Milwaukee. And I thought it was actually just a fun quip at the idea that people in Wisconsin like ought to drink within their limits, right? And use designated drivers. Like we're so good at drinking responsibly that when you do it, it's actually drinking Wisconsinably. That's what I thought it meant. And uh, I was telling my students that, like, yeah, uh, you know, Maddie and I, we drink Wisconsinably, and they were like, you do, you do what? And I was like, we drink, like, we all drink Wisconsinably. That's how we should be drinking. And they were like, I don't think that phrase means what you think it means. <laughs> I found out that the idea behind the T-shirts and the bar that bears its name is to minimize the necessity of proper alcohol use, right, by collectively accepting its, mis its misuse. Right? If we can all agree that it's not that bad, then like, yeah, you can drink and drive. That's not that big of a deal. You can drink to excess and act a fool. That's all fine because that's how we do it here. It's all good. In the biblical story, though, alcohol is a gift to be stewarded and enjoyed because it is given by God. Think of Psalm 104. It says this, You cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate, that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, and bread to strengthen man's heart. This is the biblical picture of feasting, to gladden and to strengthen the heart, not to dull it with binge shrinking and poor decision making. Right? It would be a mistake to misread Jesus in this parable by saying that it's good to be the lost sheep and to stay lost. Right? That, that acceptance comes through disregarding morality and sin. This is why Jesus describes such people as lost sheep who have lost their way. Look with me at verse 5. Look with me at verse 5. Jesus says sinners of all varieties, whether it's sexual or substance abuse or lying or greed or pride or envy or gossip, they've all been like sheep who have gone so far away from the shepherd who loves them and will accept them that even if the shepherd were to find them, he'd have to lay them on, upon his shoulders and carry them home. They can't be just nudged back with a shepherd's crook. They have to be picked up and carried. And this means that belonging to groups like these that promise you acceptance and belonging based, on based upon diminishing the reality of sin, man, they are hollow relationships at best. They are founded upon lying to you and flattering you instead of real friendship that asks hard questions, that challenges you and endures and perseveres in that challenge. The friend who tells you, Right? Oh, you can confide in me. It's not gossip. I, uh, you can vent to me. It's not a big deal. As a, as a minimization of your gossip, they are not a friend to you. They are not being a friend to you at all. Uh, they are trying to help minimize your own understanding of sin. Whether it's endorsing alcohol abuse or sexual lifestyle, political positions, you name it. If it is contrary to God's ethical norms in the Bible, right? That Jesus, Jesus calls this what it is in this parable. It's lostness. It is sin, right? Even while these people are drawing near to him, he's not mixing words. You are lost if you are in sin. But he doesn't leave them lost, does he? He doesn't leave us lost, does he? Look with me at verse 4. Jesus asks a rhetorical question. What man, having lost a sheep, would, wouldn't seek after it until he found it? Right? If they're precious to him. This is the hope for all humanity, that God does not leave us to our brokenness. 
this is who God is, that he has come to us in Jesus. And while it might not make the most business sense to leave 99 sheep to go after one, right? He cares so much for the one lost sheep that he will go and find it and throw a party when he brings it home. Now, friends, he searches high and low on every mountaintop and in every valley looking for the lost sheep. Miles and miles he will walk with no end in sight if he can just grasp the one lost sheep. And here's the beautiful thing about it. He's never lost one yet, right? They don't stay lost. He is the good shepherd, and he is seeking you even this morning. This morning, he is looking for you. Whether you've been a Christian for years or never before, he is looking for you. The acceptance that you're looking for, he is, he's trying to give it to you. If you'll but let him find you and rejoice over you and invite you, right, and all of heaven to rejoice over you, you can have all you need in him. Can you imagine Christ's face? Can you see him smiling at you and welcoming you home? A good shepherd telling you to rest with him and walk in his paths as he provides all that you need. This is our final and lasting answer uh, for this morning's question. How do we find acceptance? We find it in the joy of our shepherd, Jesus. How do we find acceptance? We find it rightly in the joy of our shepherd, Jesus. When I was a sophomore in college, uh, the summer after my sophomore year, I went and worked at uh, a camp in Black Mountain, North Carolina called Camp Timberlake for Boys. And while I was working at that camp, uh, my boss got wind that I liked trail running, like that I liked to go on long runs. He said, I know the perfect trail. You know, I hadn't spent hardly any time in the mountains. And he said, you know, uh, you know, being from Western Kentucky and going to a school in Western Kentucky, it's mostly just like small hills. And he said, I got, a, I got this beautiful trail. It's called Rainbow Trail. And you go up it and you'll make a big loop and then I'll come back and pick you up in an hour or two. And I said, great, that sounds awesome. I'd love to do that. And uh, he, the director of our whole camp like, drive, like makes a special trip to drive me out there. And I, just as I'm getting out of the car, he goes, now remember, the trail is going to fork. And when it forks, you need to take the right trail, and that will lead you back around the mountain and here. If you take the left, it'll lead you to Mount Mitchell, which is the highest point you know, in the eastern U.S. or whatever. And it's like uh, you'll end up at, at Mount Mitchell, and that's like 15 miles away, right? And I said, right, gotcha, take the right fork. Now, when he said take the right fork, uh, what he meant was there's going to be a point where the trail goes like, you know, kind of juts back into the right, and then there's another trail that basically just keeps going straight. So unless you know that that other trail is going that way, you'll just keep running. Uh, and I found that out because that's exactly what I did. Uh, and I was running for a while and a while, and I was like, man, he told me this was like a, like a five-mile loop, and it's been like an hour or so, and I feel like that's, and I did, but I just kept running because I'm thinking like, you know, I'll eventually get back, or I, maybe like I, if I turn around or if I break off, like I could get even more lost, and I, uh, I only stop when I see a, uh, a little sign that says Mount Mitchell, like five miles away. I had run like 15 miles in the wrong direction, and I was like, oh, you've got to be kidding me, and I don't know where I am. Like, I'm like going to try and get back, and so I try to, like, I turn around, and I start walking back, and, like, and eventually it starts to get dark, and I actually have to, I end up just saying, like, you know what, if I keep trying to walk and not see, like, this is only going to get worse, my phone is at, like, 3% battery, so I don't want to trust this, so I just call him, and I say, 
hey, this is embarrassing. He goes, are you okay? Like, I, like, I've been trying to call you. I was like, I didn't have cell signal. And as soon as I got it, I called him. And he goes, he goes, we were so worried about you. And I said, yeah, I, th- I think I'm lost. I, like, took the other trail, I think. You, like, and he says, he says, uh, stay where you are. Like we're, like, we're coming to find you. And eventually, right, like, he comes and finds me and, like, leads me back out of the, out of the forest. I tell that story uh, because the truth is, as hard as it was to admit like how lost I was, I knew in that moment the only way I was going to be found is if I gave up on my own efforts, gave up on excluding other people and, and, uh, and embraced the fact that like confessing my lostness was the only way I was going to find help. I couldn't fix my situation, but as my boss Dan came and found me on that side of the mountain, I realized that accepting my lostness became the key to being found, being willing to pick up that phone and call. And here's the great news, right? All you have to do is call for help. It's to, as Jesus says, repent. Turn from your sin and turn to him and say, I need you, not these other things. You don't have to trace your steps back. You don't have to climb a mountain or read the right signs. You don't have to clean yourself up. Just as you are. Jesus has been looking for you like a good shepherd seeks his lost sheep. Come, let him pick you up. Let him lead you to the place of true belonging where heaven rejoices over you and you can truly belong with the one for whom your soul was made. Christians, come back to your first love. He's waiting for you, seeking you as you wandered off. He has never wandered from you. He longs to be with you. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this word this morning. Thank you for uh, allowing task letters and sinners to draw near to you and, and the cost that that would bring upon you in your death and your sacrifice. Um, it is by pacifying wrath that you allow sinners like us to come and to uh, people who have sinned to come and, and dine with you like we're about to do in a moment. Lord, I, I pray that... Um, that would not be lost on us this morning, that other pretenders to acceptance, being good people or not being good people, I pray that like both of those things would, would diminish before our eyes and that you would be more beautiful and, and great. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.